You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first reading comes from the first letter from Peter. Um, You can grab one of the Bibles in front of you in the pew, and if you do not own a Bible, please take this as a gift from us. We'll be beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? The gospel reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Which you can find on page 868 of your Bible. This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Amen. Let's be seated. Well, good morning, folks. Good morning, everybody. Hope that you all are doing well. I see some people I don't know. Welcome to Redeemer. Glad you're here. Thanks for visiting. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful to serve here as a pastor. Now, today is the second Sunday in the season of Eastertide, where we, along with the church around the world and throughout history, are celebrating the triumph of Jesus over sin and death. And in this season, we are exploring the idea that this resurrection of Jesus does uh, not only uh, matter for us eternally, but that actually matters for us temporally, meaning it not only matters for life after death, it matters for life before death. And we're taking this, this hypothesis, this curiosity with us to the Holy Scriptures, to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Peter, and the book of 1 Peter is the circuit letter that was written by the Apostle Peter to a number of small little gatherings of Christians, these new kind of emerging churches on the far reaches of the Roman Empire. And it was written to people who did not witness the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. So it's, it's written from an eyewitness to people that were not eyewitnesses. It was written to people that felt the smallness and the weakness and the strangeness and the weirdness of being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus. And yet all they had to go on were the stories that other people told them about things Jesus had done. And in this way, we are actually quite similar to the original audience. And so the, impl- the, the hope or the, the aim of this letter is to help people understand the implications of the resurrection in their lives in the here and now and for our purposes in our lives in the here and now. And if I can talk just a moment to people that, that call Redeemer home, I know not everybody does, but if you are someone that calls Redeemer home, if you could please pick up one of these guidebooks on your way out, it goes, it goes along with the sermon series, but it also helps our small groups track with each other as we go through this series together. And they're by the door over there and by the door over there, please get one before you leave. It'll help you track with us throughout the season. Now, last week we talked about resurrection hope. It's the appropriate thing on Easter Sunday, resurrection hope. Today, we're gonna talk about resurrection hope holiness, resurrection holiness. Let me say a prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So when I was a kid, uh, my grandparents would take the whole extended Murata family to the beach for a week in the month of June. And after long hot days of boogie boarding and surf fishing and crab catching and shrimp peeling, there would be the evening poker game. 
And I realized that not everybody does this on their big family vacations, but our family's a little strange. We like to finish every day by mercilessly trying to take each other's money and leaving every, almost everybody in the room a loser except for one person. It's a great way to end the day when you're on vacation. Um, no, we actually didn't play for money. We just played for bragging rights. But in our family, with the kind of c- competitive spirit we have, that was actually probably worse. It might have even been healthier if we played for money. But we didn't. We played for bragging rights, and so we played poker almost every night. Now, let me set the scene. Imagine a long table that seats about 15 people. Imagine low lighting. In my memory, the room is like foggy with cigar smoke, but I don't think that's actually true. Like in my memory, I don't think anybody was actually smoking inside our beach house, but just maybe imagine that. It adds color to the picture. So there's three generations around the table. There's my grandparents, there's uncles and aunts, and then there's cousins and siblings and and then me. And over here on this side of the table, there's my grandfather with his bottle of Michelob light every night. Then over here at this side of the table, there's my grandmother with her bowl of ice cream. And my grandmother always insisted that ice cream is, is the appropriate way to finish every meal. And she would always say something like, well, we just have to get the fish taste out of our mouth. And the funny thing is, is that she would say that no matter what we had had for dinner that night. So like we could have just finished a plate of lasagna and she'd still slide a bowl of mint chocolate chip in front of you and say, just get the fish taste out of your mouth. Like, love you, grandma. So here we are. And everybody would start with a stack of poker chips and we'd play for hours. And sometimes you win big and sometimes you get cleaned out. And the whole family knew that the most dangerous player at the table was actually my grandmother because she would pretend to forget the rules, but she was actually the card sharp. And so she would kind of pretend to be all confused. She would hold the cards upside down and would kind of peer around the table and go, is a full house bigger than a flush? I can't remember. Is it my turn to bet? Oh, I forget the rules. And then she'd kill you. And so there we are. And... As we're playing, if you've played poker before, you'll know that there's the most dramatic thing that can happen in a poker game is when one player pushes all their chips to the middle of the table and says what? I'm all in, which is a way of betting everything you have on a single, like few cards, a single hand of cards. Another way to say it would be, I'm betting the farm. And my grandfather, growing up as a Minnesota farm boy, that that phrase had certain kind of cachet for him. So I'm betting the farm, I'm all in. And when you do that, it's a really big moment. You're risking everything you got. Like you're either gonna win big or you're gonna lose big. Now, at this point, some of you are thinking that I'm describing in long form this poker game because the title of this sermon is Resurrection Holiness. And you're thinking, oh, I see what he's doing. He's setting up this kind of dichotomy. See, playing poker, that's not very holy. You know, holiness, that's what we're gonna talk about. No, that's not what I'm doing. When you go all in, you're giving your whole self to the thing, right? Pushing all the chips to the middle of the table. And that I think is a visual for probably one of the best definitions of what it means to be holy. Holiness means full devotion, all in, betting the farm. Now, of course, that's not what you and I tend to think of when we think of the word holy. So if I just say the word holy, I'm kind of curious what images come into your mind. If you're anything like me, that word actually has a negative connotation. It causes me to think about things like self-righteous or maybe like spiritually prideful, arrogant, like I'm better than you. Um, You might think of the phrase holier than thou. I mean, almost everybody, Christian or non-Christian alike, has a negative association with the word holy. And when you woke up this morning and you thought about coming to church, you were not hoping that I would preach a sermon on holiness, were you? No, you weren't. (laughs) You were hoping I'd be talking about something else, right? But here's the thing, here's the reality. 
you and I are gonna be devoted to something or someone. Something or someone will be holy to you and you will be holy towards something. Uh, there was an article I was reading a few months ago right before the Super Bowl game that was describing how sports have taken on this religious status for many people. And there's all these rituals that surround like true sporting fanatics. Like if you're going into that game and one of your you know, teams is playing, you've, got, you've developed rituals around this. You gotta paint the face, you gotta put on the jersey, right? You gotta, like there are certain foods you, foods you eat. Maybe you've gotten a little superstitious, certain foods you don't eat, certain things you don't say, right? And so like the sporting event has taken on near religious status for a certain subset of the population. Now, maybe that's not you. Maybe it's a different thing. I read a different article in The Atlantic recently that talked about how for a lot of people, politics has become the thing to which they are fully devoted. It's become sacred, almost you might use a word like holy. And this is intensified as faith in Jesus and the Christian church has gone down. So like you can actually measure out as church attendance decreases, political fervor increases. The article says this, quote, if the secularists hoped that declining religiosity would make for more rational politics, drained of faith's inflaming passions, they are likely disappointed. As Christianity's hold in particular has weakened, ideological intensity and fragmentation has risen. American faith, it turns out, is just as fervent as ever. It's just that what was once religious belief has turned into political belief. The idea being that you're gonna give yourself to something, you're gonna push those chips to the middle of the table on someone or something. Now, the Bible tells a very interesting story about holiness, about this, this idea of being fully devoted to something. The biblical, the biblical story begins with creation and human beings are made to be these creatures who are fully devoted to God, which is a different way of saying human beings are made to be holy. And this is what sets humanity apart from the rest of creation. Humanity is to be fully devoted to God in a way that they choose, in a way that is different from the rest of the material world. But then through what we call the fall into sin, which kind of runs through Genesis chapter three all the way through Genesis 11, there's this unraveling of holiness, this unraveling of devotion as humanity turns its devotion away from God and onto the self. Now, God begins to restore the holiness of humanity when he establishes the kingdom of Israel. Israel is to be God's chosen people that are fully devoted to God. And in their devotion to God, they are to experience the goodness of being devoted to God and then to proclaim that goodness to the rest of the world. Israel's role in the world is to be holy, a holy people devoted to God and then to demonstrate to the rest of the world that therein lies true humanity. Therein lies life and goodness. Now, Israel fails in this role and so God becomes a human being in Jesus to show us what it looks like to be fully devoted both to him and to us. And then in Jesus's resurrection from the dead, God inaugurates a new humanity, a new people that are to be holy, consecrated to God, devoted to God. And the biblical story ends with that new humanity fully devoted to God, a holy people dwelling with God forever and ever in mutual devotion. God devoted to his people, God's people devoted to him. That's the story of the Bible through the lens of holiness. And in this particular text here in 1 Peter, we have Peter writing this letter to all of these followers of Jesus living all scattered about the Roman Empire, and they are struggling with holiness. They're struggling with holiness because they are experiencing the discomfort of living, of attempting to live a life fully devoted to God when that is so at odds 
with everything that is happening culturally and societally around them. They are feeling the implausibility of a holy life. And I would maybe pause on that for a moment and just kind of recognize together in this room, I think we feel that too. I know I do. The implausibility of a holy life, the unrealisticness, if that's a word of it, the strangeness of it, the weirdness of it, the sense that that kind of life was not the life that everybody else around me is living. Now, what Peter says in the beginning of this particular passage about holiness is he writes in verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action being sober-minded. Now in the original Greek, what he actually says literally is gird up the loins of your mind, which is a strange way to talk. That's not how we talk. But here's what you need to know. This is actually a clothes metaphor, an apparel metaphor. In the first century, normal standard apparel for any person, man or woman, would be some sort of long flowing like cloak or robe or tunic that is cinched around the middle with some sort of rope or belt. And this is a very comfortable article of clothing for most of the things that you have to do in any given day, for cooking, for cleaning, for working, for farming, for walking. What it's not comfortable for is running or fighting. So if something, if a crisis hits and something strenuous is required of you, what you have to do is you have to gird up your loins, which means like take the cloak and tuck it into the belt and kind of cinch it up real tight and now you're ready for action. And so what Peter is saying to, the, to these, you know, original, this original audience is gird up the loins of your mind, which is like get ready for action. Things are about to get real. Now he goes on to say, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former obedience. Now, what he's doing is he's setting up a this versus that dichotomy. On one side, he's got passions of former ignorance. These are the things that you used to love and care about and be all into before you encountered Jesus. And then on this side, he sets up the grace in Jesus Christ. And his point is, you're going to be passionate. You're not trying to shut down your passion. You're not trying to turn off your affection, turn off your love. In other words, to be holy is not to be somebody who just doesn't care all that much about life, who's just not into having a good time. <laughs> a lot of times we tend to think of holiness on one side and like fun on the other side, right? And just to be clear, that is the opposite of what Peter is talking about in this passage. He's not saying you used to have fun, but now you're a Christian, so no more of that. Instead, he's saying, no, you used to be passionate about these things, but now redirect your passion in this way towards Jesus. So what we're gonna do with our next kind of few minutes is we're gonna explore this theme of holiness through this long passage. And we're gonna do so from a couple different angles. And here they are. One, holiness is a response. Holiness is a response. Two, Holiness is a struggle. Holiness is a struggle. And then three, holiness is communal. So it's a response, it's a struggle, it's communal. Let's start with a response. All right, we're in verses 15 and 16 of chapter one. You don't have to turn there, just listen. It's very simple. Peter writes, as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So, the really simple concept there is that human holiness is to be a response to God's holiness, which of course then begs the question, what does it mean that God is holy? This is one of those things that I think most people who have been around church for any length of time take for granted, but they don't actually think about it or understand it. So 
If you have been around church for a while and I give you a multiple choice question, is God holy? A, yes, B, no, right? You would get the question right. Yes, okay, God is holy. That's what Christians believe, right? Okay, what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, here's what it means. This word for holy in the Hebrew, in the ancient Hebrew is kadosh. It means separate. You can almost hear the meaning of the word in it. Kadosh, it means cut off, separate, set apart. The idea is that God is separate, cut off, set apart from us. He's not like us. He's not on the scale. And this is different from the way most of us tend to think about God. Most of us tend to think God as, of God as being relatively like us, just more so. Like you're smart, God's smarter. You're reasonably loving, God's more loving. You're like a little bit powerful, but God's really powerful. And you think of God as just further down the spectrum from wherever you are. And actually what the word holy means is no. God is not on the spectrum with you. He's not on the scale. He's different from you entirely, of a different order. And there is actually some mysterious comfort buried in that concept, in the concept that God is holy. And here it is. And this is not gonna sound like good news initially, but we're gonna, we're gonna get there. Note number one, if God is real and God is, not everybody believes in God, right? So, but if God is real and if God is holy, then you shouldn't understand God. How could you understand him? He's not like you. God is not like you. You shouldn't understand him. If you feel like you fully understand God, you don't believe in God, right? It just means you understand yourself. Note number two, if God is real and holy, you should probably disagree with him because he's not like you. Doesn't believe all the same things that you believe. Doesn't want all the same things that you want. And so the natural response to a real God would be, I don't think I agree with you on everything. If you find yourself agreeing with God all the time, or rather to put it a different way, if you find God agreeing with you all the time, then same thing. You don't actually believe in God. You believe in yourself, right? Note number three, if God is real and holy, you should feel some distance from him. He's not you. He's not like you. And relating to God is different from relating to other people. Now, at this point, you're thinking, okay, you said there was good news. That sounds like three points of bad news, right? But here's the good news. That dignifies your experience of God. Do you feel like you understand God all the time? No. Do you feel like you agree with God all the time? No. Do you feel close to God all the time? No. Good news, part of that is because God is holy. That's part of why you experience those things. And so now there are all kinds of ways that we don't understand God and disagree with God and feel separate from God that are actually like faults of ours that we can change and, and grow out of. But that the, the, the bedrock of those three different feelings and experiences of God is rooted in God's holiness. And you don't have to be ashamed or embarrassed for relating to God that way. A mature Christian is someone who can say, honestly, I don't understand God all the time. A mature Christian is someone who can say, I'm not even sure I agree with God all the time. And then a mature Christian could say, I just feel like God is distant sometimes. Being able to honestly say these things because of the holiness of God. You know, one of the names uh, in Hebrew in the Old Testament is this name, Michael. And it's the name of this archangel, one of God's chief angelic servants. And the name Michael, Mikael, is literally 
who is like unto God. That's what that name means, who is like unto God. And this is God's chief servant, the most powerful of all his servants, the one who is most like God. And his name is, who is like God. And the automatic answer that would kind of generate in the imagination of any Hebrew person in the Old Testament is nobody. And so I think there's, there's actually some, some very clever humor in the naming of God's servants that if you know kind of what the name means, you actually realize, oh, the only other character in the whole biblical story who we would be tempted to think of as most like God is the archangel Michael. And his name is literally, who's like God? Nobody. None of you, you guys just don't have Hebrew humor. I don't know how to like, how do I get you to laugh at this? It's kind of funny. Okay, moving on. So the text says that we are to be holy the way God is holy that our holiness is a response to God's holiness. Now, if that's all that God's holiness means, then, then what does it mean for us to respond to God's holiness with a holiness of our own? Well, it means that we are called to be set apart. Just as God is set apart from creation, so we are called to be fully set apart, fully devoted to God. It means that, that the whole of who you are is set aside for God's purposes. The first and second commandments of the 10 commandments are commandments to holiness. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any idols. These are commandments of devotion, of holiness. And holiness means loving what God loves and, and hating what God hates. Like that's part of what that devotion to God means. It means you begin to take on the heart of God. There's a, a book that I was reading earlier this week. It's called Holiness. It's by an uh, author named J.C. Ryle, who's this Anglican bishop from like 100 years ago. And um, it's a book that nobody, hardly anybody reads anymore. Why? Because the book's title is Holiness. <laughs> and nobody reads books called Holiness anymore, right? We, we, we read books like, you know, 10 Steps to Make My Life Feel a Little Bit Better. And so I, I, if, you wanna do, if you really want to go above and beyond and get like, a, like do a little bit of homework, you could go read this book. It is so good. And I'm going to quote from it a few times, and here's one of them. Holiness is the habit of being one mind with God. It's the habit of agreeing with God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. To be holy is to be fully devoted to God. If you look at the cover on the liturgy you received when you walked in, I just wanna draw your attention to something. Some of you might've picked this up and when you walked in, if you've been around here for a while, you probably thought to yourself like, why is there a painting of the Virgin Mary on the front cover of the liturgy? Aren't we in the season of Easter? Isn't that more like an Advent or like a Christmas kind of thing? Like, Gosh, our pastor really is a bad Anglican. He doesn't even know what time of year it is. So here's why, we, here's why we picked that. Mary shows us in her youth, in her sincerity, in her innocence, what it looks like to be fully devoted to God, what it looks like to be holy. There's a reason why the church has historically called her the Holy Mother. And it's because of the way she responds to God's invitation. There's an angel that shows up to Mary, delivers an astonishing message. The Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you. You're gonna conceive and bear a son. Mary initially kind of responds with, how? <laughs> I don't understand. The angel gives her an answer. And then you know what she says? She says, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. May it be, may it be to me according to your word. And so what she's doing is she's saying, here's all of who I am. And I put it at your disposal, God. My whole self, I'm right here. You do with me whatever you like. That's holiness. Holiness does not mean that Mary was perfect. It doesn't mean that she was without sin. <laughs> it does mean that she was devoted to God and that she put herself at God's disposal. 
Now, just to clarify one thing here, because this kind of tends to trip us up. Holiness is never in comparison to other people. There's that phrase holier than thou that I mentioned earlier. Holier than thou is not a Christian concept, and that's good news. It is, and it's not a Christian concept, not because it's not important to be holy and to grow in holiness, it is. But rather, it's not a Christian concept because holiness is never measured against other people. It's not a horizontal measurement. It's a vertical measurement. It's a, it's a measurement between you and God and your relation to God, your devotion to God. There's no such thing as being like holier than the person next to you. That's not, that's not the dynamic at play here. Again, I'm gonna quote from J.C. Ryle. He puts it this way. Let us never measure our religion by, what, by that of others and think that we are doing enough if we have gone beyond our neighbors. And I really love and hate that line because he's putting his finger on exactly my problem which is that I tend to think of my own kind of like relationship to God primarily in terms of how everybody else is doing and whether I'm just a little bit ahead. Do you ever think about that? No, you don't. You're so much more mature than me. But no, but here's, here's what I do. I tend to think about, well, how are other people serving and have I served a little more or a little better? Or have other people kind of given their money or their possessions or their time or their calendar or their resources to God? And have I given, have I maybe given a little bit more? And what does that say about me? And what does it say about maybe my, like the way I kind of stack up against other people? And the challenge here in the text about holiness is that it kind of smacks me in the face and goes, knock it off. This is not about other people. This is about you and God. Holiness is never measured against other people. It's always in relation to God and in relation to the self. Okay, let's pause there. Holiness is a response. God is holy. He is set apart. He's other. He's different. He's not like us. And our response is a life that is set apart. That's what it means for God to be holy. It's what it means for us to be holy. Now, some of you are way ahead of me. Part two, holiness is a struggle. Because even as I'm describing this, some of you are kind of caught between, I'm not sure I understand this and I'm not sure I even want this, right? Not everybody wants to be holy. Let's name that. Holiness is a struggle. Why? It's a struggle because there is within every single human heart a battle of loves, or you might call it a battle of affections. The human heart is a little bit like Velcro. Velcro is these tiny plastic little hooks, right? And Velcro sticks together when like the hooks meet the loops on the other side and they kind of stick and you can kind of pull them apart, but they're, they're made to latch on. They're made to stick to things. And the human heart is a, little bit of, is a little bit like the side of the Velcro that has hooks. We tend to get our hooks in things. We tend to give our affections and our loves to all kinds of things. We, things tend to get stuck on us. Now, that means that within each one of us, there are multiple things that we are either beginning or continuing to love. And some of those things are at war with each other. Some of those things don't go together. There's an internal battle within us. I'm gonna quote from J.C. Ryle again. A deep sense of struggle, a vast amount of mental discomfort are, not, are no proof that a person is not sanctified. A true Christian is one who not only has peace of conscience, but also war within. They may be known by their warfare as well as by peace a holy violence, a conflict, a warfare, a fight, a soldier's life, a wrestling are spoken of as characteristic of the true Christian. The point is, most of us tend to think the more we grow in faith, the more we grow spiritually, the more peaceful we will become on the inside. And I just want you to know that that's Buddhism, not Christianity, okay? 
The goal is not to reach this place of inner peace and tranquility where nothing bothers you anymore. You don't want anything anymore. You just have kind of surrendered and let go of the whole world and you just kind of hover above life, nothing bothering you anymore. That is quite literally the Buddhist vision. It is not the Christian vision. What you find if you talk to people who've been following Jesus for years and decades for a very long time, is you'll find people who have become more aware year after year, decade after decade, that there is a war inside of them, that they do have passions that are clinging and grabbing and hooking in all kinds of different directions, and that they are bringing some intentionality to that battle. They're leaning into it, not leaning away from it. And so this is why the Apostle Paul, in a different letter in the New Testament, talks about the end of life as, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race. Like, it is going to be a struggle all the way up until the very end. And in your final days, you will still be struggling. And maturity means that you are struggling with great intentionality and with hope and not giving up. And immaturity is surrendering the battle. Make sense? Hope is a, holiness is a struggle. And I'm just kind of curious where you are in that struggle right now. Like, how's the battle going? Are you engaged in it? Or have you kind of just tried to avoid it? That's what I tend to do. I don't like battles. I want to get away. Now, listen, this is true of everyone. I'm not just talking to Christians here. Whether you're a Christian or not, every human being has this internal war between the things that come naturally and the person you kind of know that you're meant to be. And the reality is that you can't give yourself to more than one chief love, one chief affection. And if you try to, if you try to have like two primary loves, what does it do to you? It just kind of tears your heart apart. You can't do that. It tears your heart into halves or thirds or fourths. This is why, and this is kind of a random illustration, but this is why open marriages never work. Like open marriages have been tried. They've been tried by all kinds of people. And they're often like interesting and exhilarating for like a minute. And then it ends up destroying relationships. Why? Because you're taking a relationship that by definition is a chief love, a primary love, a holy love, full devotion towards one person. And you're trying to take that and rip it into pieces and say it's going to be okay. And it never, it never works. It never works. There's no such thing as a long-term open marriage, only short-term open marriages, right? Because they tear you apart. And some of you know this pain. You just know it in different ways. You know this pain because you've spent so much of your life up until this point living on something of a spiritual fence where you've, you kind of want to give part of your heart to God but you kind of hold back lots of other parts of your heart because to give your heart fully to God, to kind of devote yourself, to give yourself to holiness would require surrendering some things that you just don't want to give up. And so a lot of us tend to spend significant chunks of our lives, maybe even sadly all of our lives, living on this kind of fence where we believe but we won't give, where we sort of like Jesus, but we don't want holiness. And when we, when we live in this place, if you're wondering like, well, how do I diagnose that? Well, the way to diagnose that would be to, to, to think about whether you tend to ask minimalist questions about the faith. Minimalist questions are, what, what's the least amount I have to do <laughs> to be in, <laughs> right? Minimalist questions are questions like, when it comes to money, how much do I have to give? Like, is it 10%? Is nine okay? What if I'm, what if I'm in debt? 
then maybe like, is five okay? Like, what's the least amount I have to give? Like, pastor, just tell me, at what point am I good, right? That's a minimalist question. A minimalist question about time would be like, how much do I have to participate? Some of you are in the process of thinking about membership. And one of the things we talk about with our members is the expectation is that we're all here most Sundays of the year. Like, we make this a priority. We worship together. We gather together. And the minimalist mindset thinks, well, how many times do I have to in order to be a member in good standing? Like, at what point am I not okay? What's the least amount I have to do? Service. How much do I have to serve? If I volunteer once a month, is that enough? Once a quarter, is that enough? Does that have to be every week? I'd like to do as little as possible, please. Sexuality. How far can I go? Where's the line? Can we make that line a little further back? Can we change the line just like a little bit? Like I want to do more sexually than, than maybe the church or the Bible or scripture or the historic faith prescribes, but, but what's the most I'm able to do? My kids, how, how much of my life can I give to my kids? I mean, I'm just figuring as long as we're naming idols, let's just name a few more, right? And by the way, all of this is autobiographical because the places in my life where I am most unlikely to surrender territory are probably my kids, right? And I'd be willing to listen to sermons about holiness in lots of areas, but I don't wanna hear a sermon about holiness when it comes to my kids because I will defend that ground fiercely, right? And some of you are parents and I know you love your kids and I know that this is hard for you too. Now, the context of 1 Peter Back in, the, let's, back in time, back to the first century, the context of 1 Peter is this group of men and women who have become followers of Jesus, but they're living as marginalized minorities. And they're feeling the pain of a holy life. They're feeling the pain of, if I live this way, if I gave myself in full devotion to God, that's gonna hurt. That's gonna be hard. My neighbors are gonna think I'm crazy. My neighbors might actually hate me. This might actually be such a countercultural way of living that I'm gonna start experiencing persecution, what do I do? You know, I think a lot of us are right in that place where the church, that for, the churches that first Peter, that Peter is writing to here are. We, it's one of the saddest and most fair accusations that outsiders, that secular outsiders can make against Christians is that they're not holy. I'll say that again. One of the saddest and, and yet fairest accusations that secular outsiders can make against Christians is that they're not holy. And I'm sure you've heard all kinds of different versions of this, that Christians don't practice what they preach, that they don't live what they believe, that they don't, they say they believe one thing, but then they live in very different ways, right? And it's like, it's the hypocrisy of the church that ends up being the very thing that dissuades most people from ever giving themselves to Jesus, right? J.C. Ryle once more, sound doctrine is useless if it's not accompanied by a holy life. It's worse than useless. It does positive harm. It is despised by the keen-sighted and shrewd people of the world as unreal and hollow and brings the faith into contempt. All right, the plane's gone down long enough. How do you become holy? How do you actually do this? And at this point, there's two different kinds of people in the room. Well, probably three, but at least two. Person number one, right now, you are fired up. You're like, all right, I feel convicted and I'm ready to like get some stuff together. Starting this Sunday afternoon, I'm gonna be holy. I got it, sermon over, let's go do it. Then there's other view that are like, I don't think I want this. I don't think I want to be holy. Like this all sounds hard and it sounds like I'd have to give up a lot of fun things. 
And I sort of wish we were talking about something else in the sermon today. The third, the third category of person just isn't paying attention. Um, so how do you actually do this, y'all? How do you find the motivation to give yourself fully to God? Is it just about trying harder? Is it just about believing harder? Is it just about being more religious? All of this stuff is only gonna lead to bitterness where God is a taskmaster who is out to ruin your fun. And both kinds of people are in trouble. The first kind of person is in trouble because you're kind of sitting there right now and you're like, I'm gonna be holy, I don't need to have fun. Shut up. That's so dumb. The second kind of person thinks that God is out to steal your joy. I'm not gonna tell you to shut up, but that's actually kind of dumb too. Now here's the answer. The answer lies in chapter two, verses two through three. Peter writes, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up into salvation. And then here's the line. If you've tasted that the Lord is good. So the answer, how do you become holy? You taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste what? How do you taste and see that God is good? It's the love that God has for you in Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross shows you his complete devotion, both to God and also to you. Jesus is fully devoted to God. You know who else he's devoted to? He is fully devoted to you. Jesus goes all in on God the Father and he bets the farm on you. The incarnation of the Son of God is God the Father's all-in moment on humanity. It's when God is saying to humanity, I am so all in on you, I'm going to become a human. That's my chip to the center of the table. Like I'm all in on humanity, I'm becoming human. That's how much God's devoted to you. And then God the Son's all in moment is the cross where Jesus says to you, I'm so all in on you. I fully devote myself, mind, body, and soul to your redemption and to your salvation. No one has ever been more devoted to you than Jesus has and continues to be. Jesus's holiness is not only his holiness to God the Father in devotion to God, it's also his holiness and devotion to you. Holiness is a struggle, totally, absolutely, but it's also a response. And it's a response to what? To God's holiness made manifest in Jesus's incarnation and ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. Therefore, the gospel is the gateway to holiness through Jesus's holiness. You can't, like, listen, you can and you will become holy as you taste and see that Jesus loves you. You can and will become holy as you taste and see that Jesus loves you. Now, let me end this way. Holiness is a response. Holiness is a struggle, yes. Uh, But holiness is also a response to Jesus's love for you. But then finally, holiness is communal. And we've got to end this way because Peter ends this way. Peter concludes this section with all of these metaphors about living stones and a holy priesthood and a spiritual house, a people for God's own possession, God's people. And he ends with all of these metaphors about the church, about the community, the new humanity, the people who are becoming holy in Jesus. And he ends this way because one of the worst mistakes any of us could make at this point would be to go out from this place and go try to be holy all by ourselves. The holiness that we hold together 
really is held by one another and we need each other in order to live a holy life, which again is a life fully devoted to God. You cannot, you are not nearly strong enough, and I'm not either. To, I, I am not strong enough to fully devote myself to God unless like Lewis is also fully devoted to God and Lane is also fully to God and like Lando is also, like I need, and Robin, like I need, I need you all to be fully devoted to God if I'm gonna make it because I'm not strong enough by myself. Let me use a couple of illustrations. Um, some of you, I don't know whether you know this or not, but um, other people's behavior is contagious. You know this, right? And it's contagious in all kinds of ways, both in negative ways and also in, in positive ways. And so when I think about something like the generosity of a church and the generosity of individuals, it is very hard to be generous all by yourself. If you are part of a church that does not give, like give lots of money and resource sacrificially, generously, cheerfully, if you're not part of that kind of church, it is very hard to cultivate a heart of generosity and cheerful giving. But if you are surrounded by people who are cheerfully and joyfully giving and surrendering and sacrificing so much of what they have for the good of God's kingdom and his work in the world, you know what? You kind of get caught up in it. You get swept up in it. It's an encouragement. Your devotion is buoyed along by the devotion of other people. Same way for the time that we give and the service that we give. Same way for the way that we relate to our families. If I am surrounded by people who will not consecrate their kids to God, <laughs> then I'm gonna be the weirdo who has to do it all by myself. And you know what? I'm not gonna be able to do it. I need others around me who are approaching life this way as well. This is what Peter has in mind when he talks about living stones, stones that are individually forming a house together or God's people or a holy priesthood. The idea is we are walking this road of holiness together, responding to God's holiness together, responding to Jesus' love and devotion to us with love and devotion of our own together. Now, friends, there isn't a fourth section to this sermon, but if there was, it would be titled The Joy of Holiness because the very thing that keeps us back from everything that we're talking about is the fear that if we actually walked the path of holiness, we would give up all the things that we like and that we wouldn't get any of them back and that our life would be kind of one long, endless religious drudgery. And that is actually the opposite of what is promised to us. And I don't think anybody says it better than C.S. Lewis. He writes, give up yourself, you find your real self. Lose your life, you save your life. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions, favorite wishes every day, the death of your whole body. In the end, submit every fiber of your being and you get eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. You find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you find him and with him, everything else thrown in. Holiness is a response, it's a struggle, it's communal, it's also a joy. Go all in, bet the farm. Jesus has gone all in on you. Go all, go all in on him, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. It sounds silly to pray, Lord, but thank you for your holiness. 
Thank you, Lord God, that you are set apart and different from us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you lived a life set apart of devotion, not only to God, but also to us. Thank you, Lord. Please help us to respond to your holiness with a holiness and devotion of our own. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.